Well, it's great to be here. Um, a couple of weeks back, um, some of you will be aware, uh, I went to Mexico for the best part of two weeks uh, with a guy called David Devonish, who uh, heads up the Catalyst group of churches uh, within New Frontiers that, that we're connected to here. Um, really, we had a great time. Uh, other than the uh, torrential rain, it, it rained pretty much every day in Mexico, coinciding with the heat wave that I think you had here. Uh, the day I arrived back here, uh, it started raining again, so I don't know what that's all about. Uh, also had um, a lingering stomach bug when I was in Mexico, won't go into too much detail there. Uh, and then the jet lag, I guess as you get older, it's harder to shake off. So other than all of that, uh, had a great time. Uh, one of the highlights was a conference that uh, we went to. Um, that gathered 120 leaders from New Frontiers churches right across Mexico. And although I don't speak a whole lot of Spanish, I've probably got two Spanish words in my armory. Uh, so they ran out pretty quickly. Uh, so I didn't really understand a whole lot of what was going on. But by the end, even of the first meeting, it felt like I'd made a whole lot of new friends. There was a former lawyer uh, to a drug baron who had quite a colourful past, and maybe I'll tell those stories some other time. Uh, met uh, the goalkeeper uh, of the uh, national Mexican champions. Uh, it's great hearing uh, some of his stories. Uh, a missionary from Alaska uh, and a bunch of farmers from rural parts of Mexico. If truth be told, we didn't have a whole lot in common. Uh, not background, not language, certainly not nationality. But I couldn't help but be inspired by the stories they told of God breaking through uh, in different arenas, different areas uh, of life in Mexico. Now, all of this got me thinking. You see, uh, I, I reckon there's this myth in our culture that I just want to try and expose a little bit before we do get into Luke's gospel. I promise we will get into Luke's gospel before the morning is out. But here's the myth, is that there's a certain type of person or perhaps a caricature of what Christians are and what we believe and what our lives look like. It's that we all come from the same background, uh, we all dress in a certain way, uh, we all have the same interests, the same tastes in music, we're kind of clones of one another. Now, over the years, other than my recent trip to Mexico, and I, I promise I'm not going to regale you with all my travel stories, but uh, I have had the privilege of visiting uh, a church plant right in the middle of Islamabad uh, with a, a Taliban cell kind of right next door in the uh, apartment block. Uh, also visited uh, a thriving church plant right in the middle of the slums of Mumbai. Uh, that's particularly moving. Uh, the, the, the offering uh, bowl goes round and the majority of people there have no money at all and they kind of bring their rice and their flour and kind of uh, pour it in as the uh, offering bowl goes round. Uh, I've also visited a Presbyterian jazz church in Manhattan where uh, everyone wears chinos and tucks their shirts in, kind of very different from the other context. All of this has led me to believe there is not one single type of Christian. Uh, it seems that this faith of ours, this gospel absolutely transcends nationality and race and language and socio-economic status. There's not one particular type of person that becomes a believer and a follower of Jesus. That is a myth. In fact, it's always been that way. 
If you were to do a, a quick trawl through the book of Acts, the story of the launch of the first church, you'll find, again, a whole range of people coming to faith in Jesus. In Acts chapter 8, for example, there's this sorcerer, this magician called Simon who responds to the gospel, the good news about Jesus, uh, pretty much because he's amazed by its authentic power. Uh, In the next chapter, in Acts 9, Jesus shows up to this blaspheming murderer called Saul. He renames him Paul and commissions him uh, not to murder Christians and wipe out the church, but to preach the gospel, see many more followers of Jesus, and plant a whole raft of new churches. In Acts 16, we find this wealthy businesswoman called Lydia uh, getting saved as a result of Paul's preaching. Later on in that chapter, this prison guard comes to faith when Paul and his friend Silas refuse to escape from prison even when an earthquake opens up the prison doors. And so if we just put all of that together, we've got this magician, we've got this blaspheming murderer who's now become a preacher. We've got Lydia, this wealthy suburbanite, and now we've got this tough-as-nails prison guard. I mean, that is quite some life group. If you take Jesus out of the picture, what on earth do these people even talk about? I mean, they probably just kill each other. If you take Jesus out of the picture, then the magician's putting spells on the businesswoman, and she's telling the prison guard that he could do with taking a shower, and Saul's just killing everybody. Seems like the nature of the gospel, that the message of Jesus is this inclusion at an incredibly profound and deep level. All of which makes Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 12 really quite baffling, really very, very confusing. We're going to pick it up in verse 49. Just to explain, we've been working through Luke's gospel over the last couple of years. Uh, This is the passage we've got to uh, in our series. Luke 12, verse 49, Jesus says, I've come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Jesus here is referring to the cross. The baptism he's speaking of is his death and then his resurrection again. Verse 51, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? I don't know what you think. My instinctive response to this question is, yes, Jesus, I think you did come to bring peace on earth. I mean, isn't that what we sing about in carols and that kind of stuff? Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there'll be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They'll be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So if you have in-law issues, it's biblical. Kind of find that reassuring. Now, what on earth is this all about? What is Jesus actually saying here? Well, I reckon if we were to step outside this room later on today and ask random passers-by in the street the question, why is Christianity divisive? 
Uh, I, I think we'd get two main answers. One of the things you're going to hear over and over and over again from people kind of wandering by outside is that Christianity is exclusive. It's like Christianity doesn't respect other people's beliefs because it claims to be the truth. So by doing that, it's divisive and it's exclusive. Now personally, I have some problems with that. There's a view that Christians are way more exclusive than everyone else. If you think about it, actually that's just not true. All communities that are built uh, uh, around a shared value and belief system are, to some extent, exclusive. It's what has to be present for defined community to exist. And no matter how open your community is, if someone disagrees with the beliefs that that community is founded on, then they're out. They are excluded. Let me try and give you a couple of examples from communities that I think it's fair to say would view themselves as pretty open. Let's say, first of all, that I wasn't an elder here at Church Central, but I was an elder at a Unitarian church. Just to explain, the Unitarian church believes that there are many different ways to God, and that basically we're, we're all climbing the same mountain to get to the top. We're just on different sides of the mountain. Let's say that I went away and I began to study the Bible and the Quran, and I started seeing that although there are some similarities between the two, they fundamentally teach different things. It's like they can't both be right because they're opposite to one another. And let's say that through all of my studying over a long period of time, I became persuaded that actually there really is only one way to God. And it's through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross that no one is going to be able to be good enough by their own good works alone, however hard they try. We're in need of a saviour, and that saviour is Jesus Christ. And I'm so convinced of this that I pitch up at the next Unitarian Church elders meeting, and I say, look, I've privately been doing a whole lot of studying. Here's the conclusion I've reached. I think that Jesus is the only way to God. And here's why I believe that. If you look at the Quran and you study it alongside the Bible, you'll find this and this. And I think what they say is, look, Jonathan, you're welcome to your beliefs, but here at the Unitarian Church, always are open. For people walking in right now, they might wonder what on earth they just walked into. Now, what, what if I really loved these people? Well, what if I pleaded with them and said, yeah, but look, can't we just meet up and, and talk about this some more? I think we need to look into this seriously. We need to open up the scriptures and see what they teach. Look at Jesus. Look at what he taught. I, I, I think we need to submit to all of this. Can, can, can I start teaching this message in the church? How long would it be before I was removed from that church. You see, all these are okay as long as I don't think there is one way. But whether I'm a Jew or a Muslim or a Christian, the moment I say, no, I do really think there's just one way, all of a sudden that very open community is no longer quite so open. 
Well, let's say that I sat on the board for Birmingham's Lesbian, Gay, Bi and Transsexual Society. And I loved everything that we stood for. I was absolutely passionate for the cause. But let's say I went to the Bible because I was going to use it to show that the historic Christian stance against homosexuality is wrong. I wanted to dig up some ammunition. So I kind of studied the Bible and started researching what it said. And what if I found in my studies that I had got some things wrong? Yeah, it it, it pleases God that we're trying to protect and love people who are victimized. However far I dug into the Scriptures, I I, I could see that it is always wrong to condone hatred and victimization of others, regardless of their background and their practice and their belief. But at the same time, because God loves us, He longs to establish something in our hearts that's very different from what we're building. And what if I, I went to the board and just said, hey, don't quite know how to say this, but I think we might have some things wrong. Like this whole alternative lifestyle stuff. What if we're actually believing a lie here? What if I pleaded that? How long do I get to stay on that board? You see, this very open community is no longer open the moment you don't believe what they do. This is the great myth. The myth is that Christianity is this hyper-exclusive group, despite all I showed you at the beginning about how unbelievably inclusive it is. Now, the second thing you'd hear, if you were to ask random passers-by outside this building, the second thing you'd hear about why Christianity brings division is that Christians are arrogant and proud. They look down on everyone. They're just judgmental. I want to do two things with that. First of all, I want to just unpack, discuss what's actually arrogant. Then I want to apologize and tell you, Christians have no basis whatsoever for any form of arrogance. First of all, let me just ask, I believe it's a very legitimate question. Which of these is the more arrogant position? There's the position over here that says that I submit my whole life to the God of the Bible. Even when it contradicts what I want it to say and what I want it to teach and my own personal bias and prejudice, I'm going to be obedient to what God has commanded in his word, even when I don't like it. Can we agree? There are times when God effectively says, left, and nothing in us at all wants to go left. But because he's God and he said it, even though it's tough at times, we submit to him anyway. So we submit to something, someone external to us, something, someone over us. We humble our lives under something, under someone, and we say, this is God. I believe this is how he's revealed himself. I'm going to submit to him. Be honest. Is that the arrogant position? Or is the arrogant position the one that says with 
no history, with no sacred literature, with no covering, no accountability or checking with anyone else. Now, this is what I reckon God does, and this is what the God I believe in doesn't do. Which is a more arrogant position? I don't know if you saw the front cover of the Metro uh, on Monday. Headline read, Elton John... Jesus would let gay priests get married. I don't know if you saw it. This is what uh, Elton John had to say. If Jesus Christ was alive today, I cannot see him as the Christian person that he was and the great person that he was saying that this couldn't happen. He was all about love and compassion and forgiveness and trying to bring people together. And that is what the church should be about. What, what do you base that on? I base that on what I think. Ask it again, which is the more arrogant position? The one that humbles itself under thousands of years of human history or the one that throws out all history out of the window and simply says, God doesn't do that, God does this. I just don't believe that God would ever do that. Surely that's the more arrogant position. Slightly random, I know, but has anyone here seen the film The Stepford Wives? Have you seen that film? Absolutely no one. Oh, oh someone. Uh, the rest aren't admitting to it either way. Basically, uh, th- th- these men don't like the way their wives stand up to them. Uh, and so one of them figures out how to build robots. And so, uh, spoiler alert, cover your ears if you want to watch this film and don't want to know what happens. Uh, Basically, what they do is they kill their wives uh, and replace them with these look-alike robots that will do whatever they're told to do. Now, here's the thing about robots. You can't have a relationship with a robot, at least not one that's intimate, not one that is meaningful. In order for there to be genuine, real, deep relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you at times, and you have to be able to choose to submit to them at times. There are things that occasionally I do that Helen, my wife, doesn't like. I know, I struggle to believe it at times as well, but there have been times where she says, look, Jonathan, this, this isn't right. Now, what makes our relationship life-giving and meaningful and intimate is she can contradict me and I can contradict her at times. And it's a faulty illustration at so many levels because, actually, you never get to contradict God. He's God. But you see what happens if you make God whatever you want Him to be? You end up with no God at all. It's a way more arrogant position you're thinking, well, what about Christians that are arrogant? What about Christians that are proud? What about Christians that even now I can think of who are judgmental and boastful? Listen, if at the center of our faith is God in the flesh praying for and dying for his enemies as they crucify him, and if we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, and that faith didn't come from us but itself is a gift of God, what in the world would or could we ever boast about? That The Bible is unbelievably clear that we have nothing at all to boast in but the cross of Jesus Christ, 
That is the gospel. That is the good news that we believe. And so, where people who claim to be Christians are arrogant, I'd humbly suggest they have slightly misunderstood the gospel. It's like that they're using religion to puff themselves up and make themselves feel good about themselves. That way, they don't have to compare themselves to God. They just have to compare themselves to you, and if in some way they deduce they're better than you, they feel like they win. So you get this us versus them mentality. Despite the fact the Bible over and over and over again says there is no them. We have all sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us are broken. All of us cannot save ourselves. All of us are in need of external help. We all kneel before the cross of Jesus and humbly tell others there's room for them too. So if it's not arrogance, if that's not what's happening here, and if it's not our exclusivity, well, what is it? Well, let's quickly turn to Romans 1. Uh, I try to illustrate what Jesus meant when he said, I haven't come to bring peace, I've come to bring division. Or just to think about it. If God created the universe to be a certain way, if that's how it happened, and if sin entered the world and fractured it and messed it up and broke it, but if in Jesus Christ he's going to reconcile it, he's going to put it back together again, he's going to mend it, now that means in order for him to reconcile it, amend it, at some point he has to confront us and say, look, this is wrong. The way you're living, how you're doing this is wrong. It's outside my design for how it's meant to work. And Romans 1 is going to show us what happens when our response is, look, I, I, I don't care. Please just, just shut up, leave me alone. I know best. Let's pick it up in verse 20, Romans 1 verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So if you just open your eyes, if you just look at and pay attention to the creation all around us, it's like the universe is constantly screaming the reality of the existence of God. For although, verse 21, they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And then just skip down to verse 28. Paul says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. So let me try and explain to you how this division occurs. God engages humankind. 
But some people will say, no, thank you. I don't want any part of what you're saying. And at that moment, things start to fracture. Things start to divide. As Paul puts it here in Romans 1, it ends up being pretty futile and debased. The heart grows darker and darker and we convince ourselves that we can get the same depth and the same beauty and the same meaning and the same fullness of life our way as opposed to God's way. And if you think about it, this just plays itself out in a thousand different arenas. We use one as an example, then we'll put it together and talk about how this brings division. Let's take one that will probably hold all of your attention. Let's talk about sex. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the man, all of him, every part of him. He also creates woman, all of her, every part of her, which means God creates certain cells to swell and certain cells to secrete and certain hormones to skyrocket. This is his idea. It's all his design and he puts the man and the woman in the garden naked and unashamed and then he says be fruitful and multiply and just in case we're a little unclear about his intentions here later on in the Old Testament in Song of Songs he says eat and drink your fill lovers and so sex is designed by God it was God's idea in the first place but here's the thing he frames it. He sets very clear boundaries around it. And so he puts the man and the woman in the garden naked and unashamed and says, be fruitful and multiply. And then immediately he says, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave or cling to his wife. So here's how God sets it up. He creates the man, creates his mind, creates his heart, creates his hormones, creates his body, creates his shape, creates the woman, has this sex idea, and then he sets it into motion within the boundaries of marriage. Here's how he sets it up. Man's going to meet a woman. They're going to begin to grow in their affection for one another outside of the physical He's going to grow to know her mind, or at least think he slightly understands her mind, to know her heart. She's going to grow to know his mind, to know his heart. And then they're going to enter into covenant with one another, a covenant that God calls marriage. And in this, they're going to have what the Hebrews calls a mingling of souls, because now the man isn't simply having sex just with a woman. He's making love to a soul, a person. It's not just a physical act. It's a spiritual, emotional, physical act that brings encouragement and edification and energy and life and all of these phenomenal things. And God goes, that's my design. That's how it works. And it does work. The man who's futile and darkened in thinking says, no thank you. I'm going to do it my way. I want to sleep who is whoever I want to. 
And he begins to sleep around. It's like all around us, people are saying, I, I'm not going to find fulfillment in God's design. I'm not going to find satisfaction in God's plan and God's way. Now, I'm going to find it in my own way. I know best. And so we start warring against how God designed the universe to be. And so we have sex with this person and that person and that person, but it's not quite as fulfilling as we thought it was going to be, and so we need more or with a different type of person, but we're never ultimately satisfied. And all the time, the, the God who loves us dearly and desires our utmost pleasure is saying, you've got to listen to me. You're not going to find it there. But if all the time we block our ears, we shut him out, we ignore him, it just keeps growing more and more and more debased, darker and darker and darker and further and further and further away from how God in the first place in his infinite wisdom and goodness designed the whole universe to be. And you can apply this to pretty much everything. You could do it with food, you could do it with money, you could do it with appearance, you could do it with stuff. You, you go anywhere you want with this. God has designed the universe to be a certain way. And when you get outside of that and go, no, I'm going to find the same fulfillment and meaning that God designed for me to find over here instead... At the end of the day, you're never going to find it, despite the fact that in your heart of hearts, you know it's not satisfying you. There's this ache, there's this lack, there's this emptiness, but you block it out and keep pursuing your own way. And you see how, played out, this can bring conflict. When people have decided, for whatever reason, that God is trying to kill their joy... And they want nothing at all to do with him. Do you see that for those of us who do love him, those of us who want to obey him and live like him and live for him, sooner or later there's going to be some kind of friction. That as we're devoted to Jesus and devoted to living like Jesus, as we're devoted to a lifestyle that honors Jesus and pleases Jesus, some people are going to oppose us. And listen, this is important. We're not to be rude. We're not to be mean. We're not to be self-serving. We're not to be haughty or proud or religious or judgmental of others. But invariably, you need to know that if you're passionate about Jesus you will experience division, conflict, and strife in your life. It's inevitable. Jesus himself experienced it. And so will you. Let's be honest. Nobody wants that. And certainly, we should not, we must not do anything to provoke that. But if we take Jesus seriously, we mustn't be surprised if and when it comes. In fact, we should be surprised if it doesn't. I mean, if you like, uh, I've never seen my faith be divisive at any level. 
I mean, this doesn't tally with my experience. Never experienced any opposition because of my faith at all. Perhaps you need to honestly question whether you're genuinely living it at any level. Because Jesus couldn't be clearer here. Following him doesn't lead to peace in all of our relationships. For the reasons I've tried to unpack for you, sooner or later it will result in conflict and division. I think there's all sorts of application here. First of all, Jesus demands that all of us makes a decision either to be for him or against him. That's the unmistakable message of this passage. Is he going to be God in our lives or are we going to be God of our lives? As we've been seeing the last few weeks, as we've been working through these pretty tough teachings of Jesus here in Luke 12, at the end of our lives, is it going to be salvation or judgment? Is it eventually going to be heaven or hell? Those are the crucial decisions that absolutely all of us have to make. There's no burying our head in the sand over this. There are important decisions to be made for all of us. Please, don't have a false view of Jesus. It's not all peace and plain sailing. That's an overly sentimentalized view of Christ and the gospel. If you follow that view and things do get tough, you will end up turning your back on Jesus. And that will be the biggest mistake you'll ever make. Sometimes it will be incredibly, incredibly tough being a follower of Jesus. But look, if he's the truth, and if the cross has made a way for all to be included, if there is no sin, if there is no past, if there is no story with more power than the cross of Jesus Christ, if he is able to save anyone, everyone, all people, then it's not just a case that he's worth following, it's that really there is no other alternative for your life. Jesus forces us to make that decision. He he divides those who are for him and those who are against him. I believe right now, it's as though he's throwing out this urgent, urgent invitation to anyone here who doesn't yet know him. The question is, what is stopping you crossing the divide choosing to follow him even choosing to follow him today and then secondly Jesus I don't think speaks of division here to scare us or discourage us I think he tells us this stuff to instruct us to inform us to prepare us that this is how it's going to be now I've been in this job long enough to see many, many painful examples of exactly what Jesus is saying here. People who have been unfairly criticized and ostracized and victimized because of their faith at school, at college, in their workplace, in their community. And when the conflict ends up being closer to home with family members, 
it can be particularly painful, particularly hurtful. Right now, I believe Jesus is wanting to come to those of you who even now are living with the very real pain of division from people you care deeply for, care deeply about. Where people have said harsh things to you, where there are relationships that have broken down because of your faith, where you've been victimized and ostracized. I believe Jesus wants to come right now and speak healing to you. He wants to strengthen you.